Hello, friends. I'm Nick LaPara, and this is the Let's Give a Damn podcast, the show you listen to when you want to hear from people who are giving a damn and making the world a much better place in so many unique and meaningful ways. Thank you for hitting play. Thank you for showing up this week. And most of all, thank you for joining us on this journey toward leaving the planet much better than we found it. Now, if you're a faithful listener of this podcast, you'll notice that we haven't released an episode in a couple of weeks. First of all, thank you for your patience. Second, a brief explanation. I've been on somewhat of a vacation. I'm not very good at them, but I'm trying to get better. Recently, my family and I drove down to North Carolina to spend time with my larger, bigger, entire family. If you're new to this podcast or haven't heard my story in a bit, a reminder that I am one of 12 children. And now that all of us are in our 20s and 30s, the family is bigger than ever. Two parents, they're 12 children, eight of us have partners now, and there are 13 children amongst us so far. And once or twice a year, all 30 plus of us get together, and it's a great, wild, crazy time. And I needed some time off, frankly. I'm exhausted. There are so many things going on in the Let's Give a Damn world and outside of it. Now, while I was away, many things happened in the United States that are absolutely heartbreaking and devastating, and painful to talk about and process through. Everything from the preventable massacre of children and teachers in Uvalde, Texas, the games that many politicians are playing in the aftermath of that massacre, the overturn of Roe versus Wade by the Supreme Court, the games that many politicians are playing in the aftermath of that horrific decision. Am I repeating myself? Listen, I have a lot to say. And I'm sorry for not sharing my thoughts and my ideas for how we move forward on this podcast sooner. And I won't be doing that today, but I promise I will soon. Today is a highlights episode. Today is a much needed reminder of the kinds of conversations we are having on this podcast that are hopefully helping many people do better give more dams, live a life that is worth living. And we haven't done a highlights episode in a while. And believe me, we have had some truly tremendous conversations over the past few months. If you're new here and would like a taste of the kinds of conversations we have on this podcast, this episode is for you. If you're a faithful listener, but you're also a normal human that forgets things that you've already listened to because life is hard and complicated and you're probably tired as fuck all the time, this episode is for you too. This episode is for all of us. And as I was pulling clips for this episode, I was brought to literal tears once again, thinking about the privilege, the blessing that I have to talk to so many incredible humans on a regular basis. Like, how is this my life and my job? Y'all, once you finish this episode, if there are any of these conversations that you haven't yet listened to in their entirety, please do, and please do very soon. The clips you're about to hear are from my conversations with these amazing humans. Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis, Jeffrey Marsh, 
Frederick Joseph, Hillary McBride, Janos Martin, and Alok. And these clips touch on some of the following topics. Advocacy work, police abolition versus police reform, growing up as a non-binary human, living and loving fiercely in a world gone mad, raising children well, raising children who give a damn, raising millions of dollars to help people in need, growing up in a blue state versus growing up in a red state, how to work well and live well with people you don't think like or live like, and so much more. I truly hope these clips will help you. I know they will if you let them. Before we begin, as always, a quick reminder that you can email me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com to ask questions, to recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate the show. Anything goes. I just love hearing from you. And now, let's get right into this highlights episode and let's listen to these clips from my conversations with, in this order, Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis, Jeffrey Marsh, Frederick Joseph, Hillary McBride, Janos Martin, and last but most definitely not least, Alok. Let's go. But finally, I realized that it wasn't really even trying to get people to convert to love, to God. I just want people to get to love. And the two paths that got me to love is what we just said. All the world's major religions have something in there about love your neighbor as yourself. Every, yes. Everything. The ones I can't pronounce, right? All of them. Love, love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Don't withhold some, from someone that which you need. The sick tradition, it's not seek, everybody is sick, says don't break anyone else's heart. Mm. Oh my God, what? Don't break anyone else's heart. Okay, that's a good ethic right there. So that stream of love neighbor, love self, but also Ubuntu, which is this South African Zulu philosophy that I bumped into actually reading leadership books, um, The Fifth Principle. Yeah, the fifth discipline, the fifth discipline, um, was the first place I saw it. And then I dived into it and uh, went to South Africa a few times. This idea that a human is a human through other humans. A human is a human through other humans. Um, I am because you are. Uh, King would say we're inextricably connected one to the other, woven in a garment of humanity. What affects you affects me. Oh, my God, that's everything. I'm like, oh, that's everything. I like to think that these South African people, because we're all African, preceded, you know, these religions, since we're all African, from the cradle of civilization. Thank you. But this philosophy of, you know, who's going to make the fire? Okay, I'm going to go get the goat. Okay. You know, who's got the kids? You know, right? A community of people mm -hmm. all using their particular gifts to make sure the community flourishes, that's what this is. Mandela was able to love the humanity of his captors 28 years in jail. You know, this is Desmond Tutu's philosophy. I'm not trying to love, I'm not trying to be in jail and love the people, but this energy is human. And so those two things came together to make me think, what kind of love is this? This love is revolutionary. I did a conference for uh, 15 years with my colleague and friend, Valerie Cord and others, called Revolutionary Love. 
It's revolutionary love. It's just love, but it's fierce love. And I'm looking in the dictionary. What does the word fierce mean? Yes, this is what it is. (laughs) It's risk-taking. Aggressive. Assertive. I will jump in the water and grab you when you're drowning kind of love. I will stop you from crossing into the street because you're not paying attention because you're on your phone. Like that kind of love. I will walk up flights and flights of stairs to feed old people kind of love. I will go to Memphis when I know my life has been threatened kind of love. Dr. King, I know I'm going to die, but I'm going to say I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man because mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Get back up and go across the bridge again, John Lewis kind of love. The kind of love that is the kind of love that Rabbi Jesus had for us to feed the hungry people when they didn't have a credit card, to give, to heal them when they didn't have health care, right? To lay down, um, to lay down our stuff to make a better world. This is fierce. And that's what's in the book. And it's three circles. Love you. Because I actually think, Nick, that maybe what's wrong with the world is people are loving each other the way they love themselves. And they don't love themselves, so they don't love other people. They hate themselves. They loathe themselves. They're wounded people. They're broken hearts moving around the world, making policy and laws, moving around the world, putting white racists on the Supreme Court. I mean, they don't love themselves. And therefore, that's how they behave. So how do we cultivate a real um, non-possessive delight in the uniqueness of ourselves? How do we love ourselves? So we fully can then, second part of the book, love our posse. And then the third part of the book is love the world. And the steps along the way are telling the truth. You can't lie your way to love. Mm. Tell the truth to yourself, about yourself. Quit the BS lay down your burden. Some of us are, I'm just going to keep being the one that's wounded because it makes me feel good. You got to lighten up that shit. Let some of that shit go. (laughs) Don't stop sweating the small stuff and keep it moving. Um, uh, uh, Speaking the truth in all of our relationships, showing wild kindness uh, toward each other, like rule-breaking kindness. The Muslim woman is standing in front of you in the grocery store and the kid's crying and the people are sending her daggers. Why don't you talk to the kid? Why don't you dismantle that moment of hatred and pain? Um, yeah, nine steps to increase our tribe, to take risks, to be morally courish, courageous, and to be fierce and unselfish in our love. When was, at what point in your life did you feel fully you for the first time? Birth. Birth. It's really interesting because so many people, and you, you, you would never fall into this trap. But, you know, when I do like uh, daytime TV, morning show kind of interview kind of feel, all the time they'll ask. When did you know you were different? Yeah. And I I just feel like I want to reach across and <laughs> grab them, snatch them. Um, yeah. Because yeah. I never was different. You know, fundamentally, the point being, fundamentally, I'm a human being. So when did I feel fully me? From birth. Society told me that was trash. Society was wrong. I tried for years to cover it up, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I don't look at it like, 
there were times when I felt like me and not like me. It just always was like, I was me and navigating that and was given zero ways to feel good about it. Yeah. You know? Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, and I, I guess when I'm asking that, and that makes total sense, and I, I can understand how you want to when those questions are asked. I, I'm, I'm not talking about you. No, 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 totally. But I want, <laughs> no, no, I understand. Because I, I know you know where I'm coming from. I want to go, I guess what I'm asking is, and, and I, I'm asking more for people listening because I think there is this idea that you can't, while you're being abused or while you're being told that you're not who you really are, that you don't feel truly you. And yep. you're saying, no, even in the midst of the, uh, the verbal slaps in the face about who I am, the, the people that should be supporting who you are, not supporting who you are, you still felt, I'm me. I can't, yeah. I'm not, I can't change that. Not going to change that. I'm super happy with who I am regardless of, because a lot of people don't think kids can, I think part of the reason these stupid bills come up is because people are like, you're going to ruin the kids. Like they can't make that decision when they're young. But I just <laughs> met, you know, this wonderful human yesterday, Rochelle and her five-year-old gender fluid child mm -hmm. who fully knows who they are. Yep. Why? Who told people, you know, who was the first person, who was the first expert to say, kids can't feel it that young. Wait till they're adults and they can make that decision. Like somewhere along the line, somebody told a bunch of people and they told a bunch of people. And now it's common knowledge that kids, you can't let a kid decide who they are. <laughs> and yet, straight people go around asking five-year-olds, are you boyfriend and girlfriend? Isn't that wild? Right? I mean, we acknowledge that pe who people are is intrinsic from a very, very young age. I was very LGBTQ in kindergarten. I got in trouble because I would steal, for dress up, I would take all the dresses. I wouldn't put them on because I knew I wasn't supposed to, but I would steal them because I felt if I couldn't, nobody else could. <laughs> and that yeah. was kindergarten. Yeah. It's... um. It's complicated, right? So, yeah. like, you know, talking about it on a podcast and just coming out with one sentence to describe my childhood, sure. like that's... So I did try for years to, I wouldn't say not be who I am. I tried to hide who I am, for sure, to be safe. Because mm. I needed to. Yeah, yeah. And I just, throughout my childhood, had the overwhelming feeling that I... I to to be totally frank and honest, I thought, was I born on Mars? Am I like the only, this makes no sense. But that is very different than what am I? You know? Yeah. Which is the narrative people want to hear about growing up LGBTQ. Multiple times uh, throughout your career, but most actually, most recently, you have used your voice and situations that have been happening in society to raise lots and lots of money. Yeah. Right? And so there's the, you know, Black Panther challenge and the Captain Marvel challenge and the rent relief campaign. Talk about some of those things. Like, why did you, A, how the hell did you get that done? And, and why did you, I mean, why did you do it? There's a lot going on. You probably are trying to figure out how to, you know, survive yourself and, you know, make money during a pandemic and all that. I, I went through that as well, yeah. you know, but you stuck your neck out there. And especially in these, I, I love, I love the, 
Black Panther challenge, like some people m- might be like, well, you raised all this money to send kids to see a movie. But how monumentally important yeah. was it to send those tens of thousands of children to see a movie where they can see themselves on the screen for maybe in an in an action hero sort of way, not in a, you know, in a token, we've got our token black actor sort right. of way or whatever. But right. this is you're the, the the you are the superhero. Right. Um so yeah, talk about some of those campaigns. Yeah, I mean, you know, for me. I've always had a gift for selling things, right? Like um, <laughs> one of my favorite lines um, in any song ever is Jay-Z say- saying, um, I can sell ice in the winter, I can sell fire in hell, right? It's amazing. And and, and I, I, I feel like I've always had that gift. I, I remember being in high school um, and being on student government and, you know, we had like a can drive, right? And, you know, everyone was asked to bring cans to school. And um, I didn't, I didn't raise any, I didn't, I didn't bring in any cans and I didn't get anyone to bring any cans. Why? Because I realized at the same time we had our can drive for houseless people, there was also this sale at ShopRite, which is a big supermarket called the Can Can Sale, where like can, where sale, like canned goods are like 10 for a dollar at the time. I'm pretty sure that doesn't exist anymore, but at the time it did. So instead of asking people to like lug cans to school, I asked everyone to give a dollar, right? So everyone gives a dollar. So I ended up raising uh, or collecting um, about 40 times more cans than everybody else on student government. And I've always had that kind of like my mind has always worked in these ways of like, how can I use my gift of gab, persona, strategy, strategic mind, and like, I guess like likability to be a force for something. So I, I think that the Black Panther challenge first was like kind of like a direct tie to that, along with like, you know, oh, I have an MBA now. So I also have some connects in, in the marketing world, so on and so forth, and know how to build out a campaign. But it really was kind of just the like the the energy of like, yeah, we can take you can you can donate to um, you know, Boys and Girls Club, and let's say maybe they take 10 kids to see the film, or I can build that entire story of how this film's important and this and third, and people will give $10, $20, $30 from around the world. And next thing you know, I think we ultimately raised like over a million and took like 70,000 kids worldwide to see the film, right? It's amazing. So like, I just I just understand how people's minds work. And that goes back to the importance of storytelling. Um, you know, and then I think later, you know, we did kind of the same thing with Captain Marvel. Um, and then when we got to the pandemic, it was funny. I, my 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 fiance and I we had raised forty thousand for um, a local um, food pantry, um, but it didn't feel like enough, right? Because I think there's so much red tape, and and also when you have these like nonprofits, what we found with like the nonprofit system, right? Like the, the structure of most nonprofits is that like there's a lot of red tape, right? It's 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 very. That's why I got yeah. out of the nonprofit space. I was just so sick of begging, borrowing, and stealing for everything that we needed. Right, right. It's it's, it's a lot of red tape. It's very bureaucratic, and it's very corporate in many ways, right? So. What I was finding was like, oh, we raised this $40,000 for, again, I can't remember what food pantry it was, but um, something in New York City. And like, people were like, oh, well, we don't have enough workers. We have the money. But I'm like, okay, this is not going to work. So I asked myself, what do people need? People need money to do the things for themselves right now, right? So um, I created the rent relief campaign and I just basically told, you know, everybody on the internet who would listen, like, hey, if you donate money to this campaign, I will put up my own money and give it back in real time as the camp as the money's flowing in. So like I, I think I had to put up 
in the beginning something like a hundred thousand dollars. Um, but like I'm like, hey, in real time, I because I want it's almost like a case for support happening as you're watching right. it, right? So it's like if you needed help and you tweeted me and like I you know, I chose you or happened to see you or whatever it is. And you're like, hey, like I can really use some diapers right now. Um, and my kids don't have any formula and we don't have anything to eat in the house because I just lost my job. Cool. Here's $200 directly to you. What would you prefer? Cash app, PayPal, or Venmo, right? Um, send it to you. And people are watching this happen. So everyone's like getting excited because it also gave people something to galvanize around during the beginning of the pandemic where it's like, I want to help people. I have I have some extra and I and I think that moments like that bring out the best in us as humans. And I, and I don't want my kids to like I want my kids to know that they're growing up in a both and world, right? Not an either yeah. or. You're like you're you're either, you're either you're either all bad or all good. Right. right. That's just not how life is. When I look right. at myself, when I look at people out there on the left and on the right, people trying to, you know, do the right thing, trying people trying to impact the world mm. well, and people, and then people that seemingly aren't living that way. Like I'm constantly having to remind myself, Nick, take a and I'm so bad at it, but like take a step back and realize mm-hmm. that person is not just what you're seeing right now. Mm. Mm-hmm. So stop with these blanket uh, <laughs> uh judgments over. Mm-hmm who this person is entirely. Yeah. That's not who they are. Yeah. There are a whole bunch of things, not right. just, not just that one thing. Right. And that's, yeah. the, I want my kids to know that. And so I almost oh. am glad, right. That I'm not uh-huh. right. Maybe it, 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 Should I be glad that I'm not doing it perfectly because mm. I wouldn't want them. I wouldn't want them to get this. Like right. humans aren't perfect. Right. Well, can I talk about theory for a second here? Please. Would it be okay to jump into kind of the, the academic? Yes. It is so tempting, I think, particularly when it comes to parenting, but in any any position where we have some of this baggage about having to earn good enough and being perfect, there is the illusion that somehow if we do it right, that will be better. And yet what we see in the attachment literature about forming secure bonds is that doing it perfectly, one, doesn't exist, and two creates a wound of its own because then you never teach whoever you're with how to make a repair. So if you do the very best that you can do to be perfect, but your kids aren't perfect, they will never have had someone model for them how to clean up their own mess. We actually need, because we're all in process and we all come with wounds and we hurt each other, all of the things that are inherent and part of connection, relationship, We need to teach our children and those around us and those we are stewarding and and pastoring and, you know, working within therapy to include myself in there. We need to teach them that we make mistakes too. And here's what we do when we make that mistake. So actually what the attachment literature says is, is it better that you don't yell at your kids? Yeah, because there's some other strategies or like, is it better that you don't walk out of the room? Yeah, because there's some other strategies we can use. But what's most important is actually, if you do that, that you come back to them and go, that was so not okay that I did that. Yes. Because you're giving them the model of one, their experience is worth, is kind of worth honoring and their hurt is valid and real and that they are in the presence of an adult who's taking responsibility and you're essentially downloading into their nervous system the map for how they will repair when they hurt somebody else. And so we actually know that you need repair to create secure attachment. It's This is again, the hurt and the healing going side by side. If in relationships you ignore the hurt and you don't repair, 
where you try to be perfect all the time, which is its own, its own kind of dysfunction in a way, that you actually miss creating the thickening that creates actual safety. It's somehow in the hurt and then the repair of the hurt that the true, true safety starts to exist. True conditions of health start to exist. That's really sigh. beautiful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was, yeah. I, I, I needed to like audibly sigh there because right. God, we need like 30 hours mm-hmm. to get through all of this. Um, one one last thing I'll say on this whole kid okay. thing, this whole parenting thing before yeah. we move on to the book. Um, I'm really glad to hear you say all of that um, because one of the only, or one of the saving graces of my life, which is in, in constant flux and I'm constantly growing and even more constantly failing is that somehow in all the hurt that my dad and my parents gave me growing up and me sort of fumbling through processing and healing and growing over the last 20 years, uh, you know, since I've been a teenager is that I've never, again, this, I, 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 this is a, a grace from the universe that I've never, I've always, I've never had a problem asking for forgiveness and admitting Mm. when I'm wrong. Wow. So thankfully with all the fucking up I've done in my marriage and with my kids, I have Mm. always, you know, it is as immediately as I can, I've tried to get back down there, you know, with the kids, I down on my knees Mm. and just be like, oh, I'm so sorry. I did that. That is not right. Oh, what a so gift to them. You're, mm. you're, you're, you're affirming for me right now from an academic and a very empathetic standpoint from your, you know, from your end that that's helpful. And that, mm-hmm. that, that is, that might help that might, that it's, it's reassuring me that my kids are probably going to be okay because mm-hmm. they're seeing a whole bunch of stuff in our home. But at the end of the day, they have two parents that have at this point, thousands of times in their life, mm, in their right. short lives so far, have yeah. said, I'm sorry. That's that was right. wrong. Oof. That was wrong. There's no excuse yeah. for that. That means that, that they have the map of how good it feels to have that happen. And they actually have the language and the behavioral programming to do it themselves, which is like, I don't, I don't know if you can give them a better gift. And I, I'll say, like, this reminds me. Because I'm hearing so many parallels in our stories in this way of, of how good my mom is at that. Like my mom, I, I don't know anyone better. Maybe you are actually, you sound really skilled at it, but in my life, I don't know anyone better at saying, I'm, I'm sorry, at saying, let's make this better. And so she, a really interesting experience. This was probably two years ago on mother's day we were talking about some stuff and it kind of like, I started to feel a little bit tearful and, and I I felt myself at odds with like, should I talk about what's going on for me? She was kind of asking some questions about a certain period of my life. And I noticed feeling like, Oh, it's mother's day. Like, do I tell you the truth about this or not? Like this would just be a right, the right day to be like, it's fine, mom. Don't worry about it. Like of all days on mother's day, I'm going to give you this one. And yet, and yet she was, she kind of cleared away what she was doing. We were, we were unpacking some boxes and she put it aside and she said, no, 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 I can see what's happening. I really want to know. Like, tell me what's happening right now. Tell me the truth. 
So she invited me to go there. And I said, I felt, I felt like you hurt me in this way. I, I kind of went into the thing that felt painful. And I said to her, like, this wounded me, the way that you treated me around this particular thing, whatever the thing was that we were working on, it, it hurt me. Mm. And it still hurts when I think about it. And I said, oh, no, 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 mom. I, I'm, you know, it, that thing came up again. I, I'm sorry, it's Mother's Day. I shouldn't be going to this. And she, she grabbed my wrist and she stopped me. And she said, you don't ever have to protect me from the discomfort that I feel about how I hurt you. Mm. That is mine to bear. If I feel guilt, if I feel sadness about how I hurt you, how good and right, you never deserve to be hurt. And so tell me where it hurts. Tell me where it hurts and don't protect me because I can hold it and I can take it and I want to know. And then she proceeded to say, and where else does it hurt? What else is unfinished between us? What else do I need to know about how I've hurt you? And to not just be able to tolerate my sadness and my anger, but to ask for more, like that, that makes me feel safe. And I think that when I look back and do the analysis on it, it's the opposite of walking out of the room. It's like, I'll go there with you. And not only will I go there with you, I am rock fucking solid. And whatever is happening for you is not going to shake me, which is exactly what a child or anyone in an attachment relationship deserves to hear. And we get there through the repair. When you do advocacy, especially in this day and age, um, a lot of us, you know, a lot of the, the ways people learn to be organizers from, you know, the 60s and 70s, like those playbooks are different than the world we live in now. Yeah. Things just happen at a much more rapid pace. And that can be helpful. Like we won the Close Rikers campaign much faster than we thought we were going to, right? We had like a, a two-year and a three-year plan and a longer plan. And we actually got the mayor to agree with us, you know, 15 months into our campaign. And I think a big reason for that is in the social media age, information travels very fast, momentum accumulates very fast, and that's good for movements, right? That means you can get a bunch of energy behind something uh, much faster than you ever could have before. It also means that that's going to last a lot shorter, right? Your windows are shorter for change. Um, And so I think in retrospect, you know, we should have taken the peak momentum we had and just really gotten everything we could have out of that very narrow window and not thought that it would always be open. And that's really what's happening now is there's less urgency now to close Rikers than ever. People are exhausted. People have moved on. There's other things. There's other people in charge. Uh, so, you know, that's some, to me, some lessons learned, you know, the, you have to be ready when the moment comes and just maximize it. That's a really good point. And it's one of the, I think the complicated things about being, um, a do-gooder an activist today is, I guess we're all trying to whatever our thing is, whether it's a singular campaign or an organization or an idea or a phrase or a hashtag or whatever, we're trying, we say we're not, but we're, we want it to go viral. We want it to go big. We want it to, we want it to go so big that all these celebrities and then they can retweet and then it gets bigger and that all this attention on it. And that's a good thing. I don't think that's bad, especially if we make sure our motivations and our ego is in check, right? And it's, we're really doing this for the good of what, you know, X, Y, or Z issue. But that's it, right? Is is you work so hard to get these projects going and you don't know what the payoff is going to be because it could remain very low on everyone's intention, you know, uh, on social media and otherwise. And so you put all this work into it and it doesn't go anywhere. And all of a sudden it does gain momentum. And may, maybe it's not, it's no fault of your own that you're not prepared to 
to like build on that momentum because it's hard. Once the momentum's built, it's now more work to keep that thing going. You've made this big wave. Well, how do you keep a big wave from becoming a small wave again? Well, it takes a lot of pressure and a lot of inertia and a lot of whatever makes a, a wave stay big for a long time. That's hard work. And if you're not prepared for it, if you don't have the resources, the money, the system, the team, um, and I, I've seen this over and over again, where something it gets the attention, it goes viral, there's not this the the support system there, or just the, the know-how. Like, you, you don't expect it to happen, so you don't know that you're supposed to keep it going. You think it's going to be there two months later. Nope, wave's gone. People, have, they moved on. If it was two months later, they moved on one month and 27 days ago. Right. And, and there is, you know, there is stuff within your control, right? And so when you're running a campaign, um, it is, it can be electric to have that big march, that big protest. And what I always, always, you know, tell my organizers and my team is if you're going to do a big event, then you should have by the, by the day of the big event, you should know what your next one is going to be, mm. because that's going to be when you yep. have the most people's attention, yep. right? And say, you know, thank you for coming out this March in six weeks, we're going to have this vigil. And, uh, you know, at the vigil, be like, thanks for coming out to this vigil. You know, in three weeks, we're going to do this lobby day. And that's, that is how you keep the wave going. But to your point, I mean, that does take know-how that takes, that takes trained staff, right. That takes, or, or, you know, very experienced volunteers. Um, so, you know, there is a science to it. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's also very draining to, <laughs> to keep that level of energy going over long periods of time. I know that you probably have to be careful how you talk about some of these ideas because there's you as a person and there's you representing, you know, the organizations you work with. So I am, I am a prison abolitionist. Like I believe that a prison should be, I don't believe, I believe there are certain things that there are certain people and crimes that need to be looked at differently for sure. But our system as it currently is prison system abolished and our policing system abolished. Like I don't police reform, doesn't exist in my mind. They've had hundreds of years to reform. They started as slave catchers. There has been there has been corruption since day one until day now. So you you can't fix it. The in my mind, the 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 wood of your house is so rotten. Like you have to just demolish it and start over. In my mind, how do you with these issues that you're talking about? Because we didn't we haven't talked about police abolition, but like you're talking about prison stuff, police you know uh, criminal legal system reform. And we addressed the police earlier. Like, how do you, do you see these things as being able to be reformed? Do you think that they have to be demolished and built back up? Some of them built back up some systems we don't need anymore. How do you think, like, in other words, like as you're working toward this, this is your life's work right now. What are you working toward? You know? Yeah, no, I, it's, it's a question that comes up a lot. And I think, um, you know the the, the very the, you know, the subject of abolitionism has been particularly in the last few years, right? Something that's gotten a lot more discussion and attention. And this, I think, sometimes unfortunate uh, uh, contrast made between um, from people who represent sort of both wings of it between abolition and reform, right? Where uh, you know people who are abolitionists look at certain reforms and say, well, you know, those are too modest or selling out, mm. and people who are in this sort of day to day you know, process of, of changing laws and reforming, you know, look and say, well, you know, what, what is exactly the game plan for people who believe in abolition? And for me, like, I think, I think two things, one, uh, for people who believe in, in big changes to the system, you've got to do like a series of things to get there. And, 
I'm doing basically everything I can. Our organization is doing everything we can to get to a place where we have fewer people in prison, where we have fairer laws, where we have more resources for black and brown communities. Um, and, you know, that's that may not be enough for some people, but we are building as much power as we can to do those things, right? And I think ideology doesn't really matter if you don't have like a power analysis that mm. comes with it, right? Like uh, what is exactly, you know, how can we take the people who are in power push them the most that we can, replace them to the greatest extent that we can, uh, you know, win them over to the greatest extent that we can. And what is that, what does that allow us to do? And that leads me to my second point, which is right now, like we're losing that fight, right? You can be all the way on the abolitionist spectrum or all the way on like the reformist spectrum. We're all losing that fight currently, yeah. right? We're like the last two years, we're like hanging on trying to defend things we already won, right? Um, here in New York, there was a fight about you know, people trying to get rid of the bail reform laws that we won a few years ago. And we succeeded in that we didn't prevent them from rolling back our old wins, right? So I think now more than ever is a time for, at least on the issue of criminal justice, for people who, you know, find themselves anywhere on that spectrum to find common cause around, you know, the things we all agree on and try to protect the wins that we have and get new wins and, and try to, you know, reduce the number of people in jail, reduce the number of people in prison. I think for people who are coming up, um, you know, as young people who were where I was 20 years ago, yeah. I think that's actually, you know, a pretty important question. Like, you know, what what do you want to do with your career and your life to, uh, and and I think there's a space for everybody, a, a role for everyone to play. Um, you know, personally, I'm not out there pushing abolitionism because the people that I am trying to, you know, the, my targets, the people who I'm trying to target, totally. you know, they're... They're not going to respond to that. No. Nope. And, uh, but that doesn't mean I don't think those people shouldn't do it. Um, I think if you believe in it and you want to organize for it, you know, that's what you should do. And, um, you know, and, and I think people who are coming up, like, should be as bold as they want to be. Um, for me, like, being at a position as a, as a director of an organization that works uh, not just with Democrats, we're not great on this issue, obviously, right? That we were just, we, we spent this whole yeah. conversation talking about New York, which is run by Democrats. Yep. Um, yep. But, you know, we're Republicans as well. You know, we're, we're working with Republicans on this legislation we're trying to pass now to bring people home from federal prison. And, uh, you know, uh, the, even, even what some people consider modest reforms is about as far as they're willing to go. And so that's the world I have to operate in as, uh, as a director of this criminal justice program. Every day, I lived myself without shame. And that idea of shame was so foreign to me. Like, I was like, why would people shame me for being beautiful and free? Like, huh? And then when I performed at my elementary school talent show and everyone laughed at me for doing my interpretive dance, that's when I began to modify what I look like. Mm. I told my parents I wanted to wear more conventionally masculine clothes. I wanted to only wear black or gray or tone it down. And I lost touch with that person. So, so much of my healing has been a return to that childlike wonder, that sense of spontaneity and experimentation, that, that direct relationship between this excites me, so I'm going to be it. Now, being an adult is this excites me, but I'm going to rationalize why I can't have it. Being an adult is... I know what's going to give me joy, but I'm going to tell myself a million excuses to not allow myself to pursue that joy. And in that way, I think the, the cruel irony 
of being an adult is we perhaps have more to learn from our kids than they ask. That's as a, as a parent to three children, that's a thousand percent correct. I don't want to romanticize New York city, but New York is more progressive more. And I don't know when you were a child, I don't know if that was true because I didn't live here at the time, but knowing what you know now, do you think you would have been, and this is a loaded term because who the hell, I mean, who's going to determine what that even means, but do you think you'd be better off? Like if you had grown up here, if you could have chosen growing up here versus college station, Texas, I'm sure kids would have, may have laughed at you as well here. Like just because we're in New York doesn't, there's a lot of yeah backward conservative, you know, right, right wing thinking. Maybe that's a dumb question, but it just came to mind. Like, do you think uh, that you'd have been better off here or, or do you in retrospect, knowing everything that you know about your childhood and growing up there and where you've made it to, no, I'll take that. I'll, t- I'll take what I had to go through to get to where I am. Hmm. I think I'm at a place in my life right now where I am so grateful for where I'm at. And I know that I'm only where I'm at because of what I've been through. And so, yeah, maybe life would have been easier, but then maybe I wouldn't have been me. Um, I think growing up in a small town in Texas installed in me a fire that will never be extinguished. And many of my peers who grew up on the West and East Coast can get so easily jaded and not continue the fight, but I know how hard it is for the majority of people like this in the world. I know how hard it is because when I was back living in College Station, Texas, I didn't feel safe to present as myself. Mm. And that's a humbling experience, but like this is the majority of people in the world can't do this. So that return to pain actually fuels me because it's totally unfair that someone zip code, that the arbitrary lines that we draw on indigenous land that that should be a criteria on the basis of people's ability to be in public. And let's be clear, or let's be queer, because clarity comes through queerness. It's about our ability to exist. That's what people like me are fighting for. There's so much propaganda and fear-mongering right now that makes makes you think that we want special rights and acknowledgement But actually what we're literally just fighting for is the ability to exist. And that's so embarrassing because there's so many other things I want to do. Like I would really love, (laughs) I'd really love to fight for, for bigger things, but I am still fighting for the ability to exist in public. I still, no matter how many career accolades I get, no matter how many social media followers I have, I still have to live intimately with the fear that every single day I'm in public, I will get attacked. No one should have to live like that. Mm-mm. It's Mm-mm. it's shocking and appalling to me that people have taken a community who has to navigate 24-7 threat of physical violence and warped it such that we are the one endangering the world. It's just, it's very wrong. It's very backward. And speaking of zip codes, there's this uh, clip going, whatever, viral right now of something that Bill Maher said. Bill Maher is constantly saying things that um, make us turn our heads, right? But Bill Maher said this, if this spike in trans children is all biological, why is it regional? He asks, either Ohio is shaming them or California is creating them. Now, I didn't see that from Bill Maher because I don't follow Bill Maher on Twitter. 
I saw this clip being shared over and over and over again by right-wing conservative politicians praising Bill, this liberal talk show host, for saying what we've always been thinking. But when I listened to that, when I listened to him, it's, it's so obvious what the answer is. It's so obvious what the answer is. It's so fucking obvious that it's not either Ohio is shaming them or California is creating them. It's Ohio is shaming them. It is Texas is shaming them. It is Tennessee is shaming them. It is Wisconsin is shaming them, right? We can go on and name just in in, in light of the zip code uh, thing that you just said. Like there are so many places still. It is not regional because... California is manufacturing trans kids or New York is, or Seattle is, or Portland is. It's because largely in this land of the free and home of the brave, yada, 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 these kids, if they were to come out, I mean, kids are getting shamed just for coming out as bi or just quote unquote, like regular, like gay, you know what I'm saying? Like just for being, I like girls, I like boys. For that, they're getting ostracized. For that, they're getting kicked out of their homes. Let alone if they come out and say, I'm trans. So, do you, any response? To, if Bill, if, if, have you ever been on Bill Maher? No. Would you ever go on Bill Maher? I don't know. I never say never, but. That's a hard one. Yeah. Because I don't, I, I, I some, during certain conversations, I really like, Bill's, you know, the way that he attacks an issue. And I'm, I actually sometimes am like, yes, go, you know, say that to leftist so-and-so because they need to like, just come back a little bit. But this one, when I heard it, I literally yelled out loud. I was by myself walking and like watching this video. And I'm just like, are you kidding? This is not a, and, and, I, and I think Bill is smarter. Like Bill is smart enough to know the answer to that question, A, and B, the fact that liberals leftists are, are not going to share that yeah but what if this wasn't about intelligence and what if it was about trauma right it's obvious to you and me but what if we were to do an an exercise to say how come it's not obvious to so many people and to really seriously take that question what leftists often say is it's because they're ignorant and i i think that's that's a cop-out it's it's not working it's never worked it's not working for sure um I think it's actually about trauma. It is easier to demonize trans and non-binary people than it is to sit with the heartbreak of knowing that when you were a young person and you experienced a kind of freedom and fluidity, and then the people who loved you told you, no, shut up, you have to be a boy or a girl, and this is what it means to be a boy, and this is what it means to be a girl. And they police you into that so deeply that you become the police and you defend it that's what an abusive culture does, is it recruits you into its own image. And so once again, what if we were to see all of this incendiary rhetoric as an elaborate cry for help? These people don't mm. know love. And I feel deeply sad for them that they're more upset about the existence of gender diversity than the existence of climate change. I feel deeply sad that manufactured make-believe issues because we don't have make-believe genders, they have make-believe issues. That's true. That these make-believe issues take so much of their energy and time, when that energy and time could actually be going towards, I don't know, maintaining a garden, 
like eating really nutritious food, hanging out with your friends. I mean, you mean to tell me that you're going to spend precious moments of your mortal existence on life hating other people? That says so much more about you than it does about the people that you're hating. You don't feel like your day is worth levity. Friends and damn givers, thank you for showing up and for spending some time with me and us this week. To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. Please share this episode with a friend. Please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And please show up next week. We have so many incredible conversations coming your way. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the incredible team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now. <laughs>